Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. So the Victorian election, of course, was run over the weekend and still a number of seats are in play and we're waiting to see exactly what the upper house looks like. But, um, of course, as I'm sure you're all aware, the Labor Party has been returned to government um, and the Liberals are kind of experiencing quite a, a shocking defeat for the second time in a row. We're joined um, now uh, by George Megalogenis, author and journalist, to take us through the election results and to dive into what's going on um, with different demographic changes across the state. Good morning, uh- uh, firstly, it's great to be in the studio. Last time I was here was uh, breakfast is in 2019. Yeah, so, long nothing's time. Nothing's changed in here, though, has it? No, nothing's changed, although um, we're in Green Territory, of course, and uh, a lot of development in Green Territory, I noticed, up Nicholson Street. That there is. <laughs> it's a fair bit of work I'm sure they've on. got really high building performance standards, the buildings in um, the, the, the Greens held seat of Brunswick. <laughs> 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 Now, it was quite a night. It was quite a night. I was doing uh, 7-7-4 with Virginia Trioli, so that was five hours of radio. And if you had told me before the night began that Labor was going to have a five in front of its seat count and we, and we were going to know that relatively early, about 10, 11 o'clock or 9, 10 o'clock, and that the Liberal Party would be treading water and may even be going backwards, uh, I would have said, hmm, let's have a look at the seats that did this. It is a fascinating result, more fascinating now uh, that we know that the Liberal Party wasn't able to even pick up the gettables after the downslide of 2018. It wasn't even close, was it? It it, it just didn't seem... You know, people thought it was going to be a close election. Well, on paper it should have been a close election because the government's seeking a third term. Uh, We know that this year we've we've swung into the anti-incumbent cycle post-COVID, so we've lost two governments, the South Australian government in March and the federal government in May. And the Labor people would have been a bit edgy going into this election. And we know in the last couple of weeks of this campaign they disappeared the leader. They wanted to run strong on Daniel Andrews at the start. They thought he was a winner for them. And then towards the end of the campaign, they weren't sure about how put him last, don't have a Dan hangover, whether that thing was actually going to work for them in previously safe seats in the north and the west and the deep southeast. So they weren't... Labor uh, wasn't sure if it... um, if it was going to get back as comfortably as it did. I don't think that was the expectation that they'd win as big as they did. So, again, just to I'll just backtrack, the, the most fascinating thing for me on the night is that this previously safe Liberal heartland in the eastern suburbs didn't come home. Mm. And these were seats in 2008, and if you recall, that Labor didn't expect to pick up. And there's always a bit of an overshoot in a landslide, and the first thing you do when you look at a landslide, there's all these seats right at the top of the of the pendulum that are 0.1, 0.2, 0.5% swing, and they'll fall back to where they were for most of their history. Now, those seats all moved further towards Labor. So Labor were getting swings and actually got, got an extra pickup in the, in the eastern suburbs. Uh, the West... And the North was obviously where the Liberal Party were, were, were keenly aware of there being a bit of an anti, anti-incumbent sentiment. They got big swings, but they were getting big swings in areas where they haven't won a seat before. And so this is a protest vote that didn't go wrong for Labor, a protest vote that sent a message to Labor, but they got to hold all these seats. Now, 
The other story, and this is the story that you wouldn't have expected, if you were told again uh, going into it that Labor were going to have a five in front, so basically same seat count as they took into the election, a status quo election, two landslides in a row, uh, the thing that you couldn't have um, you couldn't have predicted knowing that was that the National Party would pick up three seats. They'd wipe out a couple of uh, rural independents and actually get one off Labor, which was always one that should have been in their column anyway. So fascinating night. Status quo for Labor... Very, very good result for them. Interesting result for the National Party. Big big winner on the night. The Greens look like a big winner on the night, probably less so now that we've had some postals and pre-polls. They're probably only just going to get Richmond. And the Liberal Party, treading water, possibly have gone backwards. And that's probably the biggest story mm. of the day, of, of the night, and, and for the count, for the, what remains of the count, that the party that, was basically born in this city, basically born in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne when Robert Menzies pulled together the, the sort of relics and the, um, and, and the remains of the old United Australia Party and all the conservative forces and, and created the modern Liberal Party. It sort of begins in a place like Campbell and sort of begins in a place like Kew and begins in a place like Hawthorne and further out into the eastern suburbs when our Labor, which that map, most of that map is now red, that party no longer exists. There's so much to, to dig into there, but I suppose to, to stick with the fate of the Liberal Party for, for just a moment. I mean, what do you put it down to that they seem to be so on the nose at a time when the Nationals have had a relatively successful uh, election this time around too? I mean, do you put it down to their actual policy platform, the way they're presenting themselves, or even the way that I suppose elements of the Murdoch press, Murdoch media might be amplifying some of the more, uh, let's say, radical elements of the Liberal Party, making them seem potentially more extreme than some of them actually are? I mean, is that a factor? What do you think's going yeah, on yeah, with I'll, that? I'll, look, I'll take the second question first. I avoided it on the Saturday night because I didn't want to be uh, taking a shot at my former colleagues. And this isn't about News Limited so much, but about the sort of modern media environment we're in now. Um, very, very fragmented uh, media environment. And if there's a political party that has, uh, you know, a, f- a member of the former mainstream media in, in let's say, News Limited, for argument's sake, if, if, if it has a, a media group telling it that it's doing the right thing, uh, but the electorate is changing faster than probably any media organisation could it's headed around, and I make this comment about the ABC, so I'll, I'll talk from vested interest, mm-hmm. the ABC... News Limited and and Nine, formerly Fairfax, uh, all Sydney-based headquarters, uh, they, they don't even have a full read of their own city. And a, pla- and a jurisdiction like Melbourne, uh, which is basically now three cities, the inner city, which is gentrifying and very green. Now, the Liberal Party are hostile to that side of Melbourne. And in fact, their incentives have been, well, let's, let's put Labor last and let's see if we can get the Greens to poke them in the eye. And in Richmond, of course, Richmond has now moved across into the green column. That's the fourth green seat in Melbourne. The Liberal Party look at that and think, that doesn't really matter. They're not our people anyway. Out in the west and out in the north, uh, the Liberal Party can't get there yet because where's that population growth coming from? It's essentially, it's essentially newly arrived migrants, predominantly from India, who most of them have got a tertiary degree. So educated... Migrant, 
Does that sound like the, the Liberal Party, the way the Liberal Party's been projecting? And can a lot vote at this stage as well? That's, I suppose, a question as well. Well, a few of them would, be, had, would have moved on to the electoral roll in the last couple of years because there wasn't any uh, overseas migration for two years, remember? Mm. So those that were recently arrived would have ended up on the electoral roll, and that is a bit of a, that is a, bit of a, um, a sort of dead weight on any Liberal revival in the outer suburbs or any sort of new Liberal Party coming in the outer suburbs. So that's that part of Melbourne. The other part of Melbourne, again, back to where we were talking about the eastern suburbs, which was the which was the um, you know the heart and soul of the of the original Menzies Liberal Party, uh, that is, I hate this phrase aspirational. But John Howard used to use it a lot, but it means something different now. The aspirational eastern suburbs are again ethnic, like multicultural, but more Chinese than Indian. So the Indians more to the north and to the west, the Chinese more to the east in in Melbourne, again. Is the modern, the 21st century Liberal Party appealing to that group? They're not. Now, Melbourne, as I say, it's a challenging, it's, a, it's, a, it's as challenging a political market as any market in, in, in the country. But because it's essentially three cities, you can't narrow cast to yeah. a city with three very distinct groups. That is two-thirds New Australian. Two-thirds are the migrant or at least one, or you were born here with at least one migrant parent. So two-thirds of the city is first or second generation migrant. Mm. And you're the Liberal Party pitching to what you think is the white tradie vote, yeah, some mythical so white tradie vote, which cuts across all those demographic lines? No. Yeah. Mm. In fact, sorry, to, I've, I've sort of stored up my punchline for you. The group that cuts across all these um, sort of ethnic and cultural divides are professional women. And that is absolutely the voter. It doesn't matter which seat you look at, that's absolutely the voter that's way over the odds now for the Labor Party because the Liberal Party have... I don't know that they've ignored them. They're aware of them, but they thought they could govern without them. And they're now at that point where it's almost too late to fix that sort of problem in terms of their, in terms of their infrastructure, in terms of their party membership base, their organisational wing, their candidate selection process and the people in their party room. So you have a look at the wreckage of the Liberal Party room when they do have their meeting and they point the camera in as they go into the, the meeting to elect their new leader and you have a look at all those faces, they don't look like modern Australia. Yeah, mm. and that's, I mean, that's a huge risk for them, obviously. We're speaking with George Mekalaginas about the Victorian election that's still being counted, really, um, but really, you know, the results or well, the, the government is is in place. We know who the 60th parliament, um, the leader of the 60th um, government will be. It will be the, the ALP and Dan Andrews. And another word that has seemingly changed meaning, George, is, is humbled. And Dan Andrews said that he was humbled and it used to mean taken down a peg or two, but um, that certainly hasn't happened here. And I'm not saying you shouldn't, you know, be humbled or that we should have a humble premier, but but will will they be humble, the ALP, do you think, with this win? I mean, it's a massive, it's a massive victory. Uh, good question, good question. Would they be humbled if they knew that their opponent was worse than their wildest dreams? Like the fact that the Liberal Party... Uh, identified Andrews as the issue and he was a polarising figure but then didn't have the ground game to convert that into a safe change. So they didn't really turn up beyond as a pro- beyond presenting themselves as a protest party. So Labor wouldn't be humbled <laughs> by its opponent but what, they, what should humble them is the big swings in the previously safe seats. Mm-hmm. And what should exercise their their minds now in the next couple of years. So, look, the big advantage of having won a second landslide 
is that the next handover of power to whatever conservative combination of conservative parties uh, rules Victoria again will be on Labor's terms. So essentially the policy architecture will be Labor's and that the coalition will have to engage on Labor's terms to win power back. So that is generationally a big win for Daniel Andrews. That makes him, that puts him in a Keating category at a state level of somebody who's able to force the other side to change their policy positions, to basically dump their baggage and to pick up Labor's ideas to be able to govern again. But what would humble them, so that that, would make you float for a little while anyway, but what should humble them is that they've got a service delivery issue in, in their heartland. So when I look at the electoral map and I try and get my head around why they get swings to them, we haven't even mentioned the Frankston line, which, which a couple of elections ago decided back-to-back elections in 2010 and 2014. That's all, they're all safe Labor seats now, mm. Frankston, Morty, Alec mm. and the like. They're all safe Labor seats now. Why are they safe Labor seats? Partly because Labor was able to address some of the infrastructure needs with level crossing removals and the like. So they picked up the message there. Um, have sort of honoured, to the, to the best extent that you can in a city as complicated as this, they've honoured that commitment to that group. Eastern suburbs are obviously in their corner, well, well, well serviced, right? Picked up Bayswater, Glen Waverley too, yeah, out yeah. in that part of part of the it's state. Just extraordinary, extraordinary. Now back to the back to the west and the north. Um, if you follow the Geelong train line out and end up at Geelong, you end up in another safe Labor seat. In fact, there's a lot of Geelong envy I picked up around the traps the last couple of weeks, especially around Mornington Peninsula. And so with the one place where the Liberals did pick up a seat in the PN, uh, I think the word on the ground there is the thing called Geelong envy. Like all the, all the dollars head out to Geelong. And again, Geelong was, was one of these areas that was decisive in, in state elections and even in federal elections up until recently. And that's very safe Labor territory too. So you see what the pattern is here? Mm. Marginal, um, almost over-investment, turns safe. The next place, and this is the most difficult place to service, is the west and the north. Well, I mean, now uh, there's the seat bordering where we are here in, in at Triple R in East Brunswick is is Pasca Vale, and yep. that was 22% held by Labor. I think something like four, it's in the reach of the Greens now, about 4% yep. held by yeah. Labor. That's a huge. That's, that's I, I haven't seen the final count, but something like a yeah. 17% swing against. Labor, which yeah, is... Yeah, by the way, there's a huge one in Footscray too. It's and enormous. On the night it, and on the night it looked like Footscray might go green. It didn't in the end because the pre-polls and the postals flipped it back to Labor. But if you're thinking, you put your Franco Cozzo hat on and you think 20 or 30 Brunswick years ago... Brunswick and Footscray. Brunswick and Footscray are green. Yeah. Like yeah. it makes no... It sort of makes no sense until you understand what's been happening in these areas. These areas are gentrifying and, and are whiter than the city at large. No disrespect to these areas. Beautiful. My people live here. But... This is one part of Melbourne. And I, we're thinking about, is Labor humbled? Labor might look at the Liberal Party and think they're not up to it. They might look at the Greens and think there's a ceiling to their vote. We're not going to have to worry about them beyond an extra couple of seats. But they'll start to worry about the Greens uh, pretty quickly because the Greens can affect whether a federal Labor government is in majority or minority. So what are the incentives in terms of, you know, the discretionary extra dollar of funding, does it go to an electorate that's already well-resourced in the inner city or does it go to the West? Mm. And if the margins in the West are still 5 to 10 as opposed to 1 to 2, these are the dilemmas. So Daniel Andrews probably isn't listening to this particular um, broadcast at this moment. He might pick it up on a podcast later. But my humble advice to him 
would be to remember what worked for you in the southeast, what worked for you in Geelong and the surf coast, and now start to think about the west and the north because that is where the critical infrastructure uh, need is and don't get into a NIMBY competition with the Greens in the inner city. Yeah. Well, on your assessment, do you think this has been a successful election for the Greens? I mean, they look like potentially not picking up the likes of, well, Pasco Vale, which looked in play for a little while, Northcote, um, have Albert taken Park. Richmond, Albert Park, that, that's yeah. right. I mean, you know, it's been Preston. widely publicised that Samantha Ratnam called it a green slide. That seems to be up for debate at the moment. Um, there's been a lot made of Liberal preferences being direct, directed to the Greens as well. I mean, do you think um, it, it has been successful for them? I, I, I think I think this is for them, uh, treading water election for different reasons mm. to the Liberal Party. Um, but... When you look at the next election, uh, who gets to decide the shape of the government? The Greens are more likely, if there's a, if there's a minority situation the next time around, the Greens are more likely uh, to hit pay dirt at that point. Mm. And I think I think they're on a they're on a much slower trajectory than they imagined, but their trajectory is viable. And one of the reasons it's viable is their cohorts, uh, especially young people renters are more inclined to vote to give a primary vote to them than they are to the Liberal Party and they're as likely to give a primary vote to them as they are to the Labor Party. So that means that means for structural reasons they're viable. But the total seat count, who knows? They yeah. may get to five, they may get to six eventually, but that may well be enough uh, to decide the, the, the government after this one. Yep. Can, I, can I ask then, uh, George, with regards to... The government and its policy agenda. What is it about it? Do you think what what has Dan Andrews and the and the Labor government been rewarded for here? Assuming it is a, a policy platform. Yeah. So going going back to what we were talking about before, in terms of the places where they're able to pick up seats and continue and, and hold seats that they didn't previously expect to even be uh, viable in in the east. Service delivery. Now, pollsters talk about a patchwork electorate. But in the electorates, in the electorates, the last couple of elections that mattered to Labor and mattered to who formed government, they've actually done a pretty reasonable job in servicing those electorates. So I think we can overcomplicate the analysis in terms of you know the Liberal Party pulled the culture war um, uh, gear and sent them in the reverse. We could do all that again, but uh, when you think about what state governments are actually elected to do. And this goes back to the dance slide in 2018. Level crossings, level crossings was such a big deal. The build platform, that's yeah, what they... That was such a big deal in 2018 that Scott Morrison, remember him? Scott Morrison's take-out of Victorian election in 2018 was commuter car parks. Like, it's not, it's not that, the, that the coalition didn't understand what happened. They understood what happened, which is that they, their interpretation of the result meant, well, I'll just from the federal government, I'll just uh, chuck a whole lot of money at Kuyong. Yeah. And, and, I mean, you're big on looking to history to assess, you know, what government should do at a given point in time and the benefits of sort of spending big or, or kind of uh, reining in some of the spending. Um, debt is, is ballooning in Victoria and it's set to continue for some time. Is it a good time to be spending on the big build? And obviously the health system's been really struggling at the moment as well. What's the – how do you sort of project the years ahead this based is, on this, the, the economic situation? Yeah, and this is a really, really good question. So one of the – um, one of the things that's been lost in this election debate, partly because one side didn't want to engage in a proper policy debate and the other side sort of didn't know whether it was running a, a, a presidential campaign or a, or a, or a guerrilla war against 
its opponents, meaning Labor. One of the things that's lost in the, in the previous two years that we've just lived through COVID, because the international border was closed, step one, and because Victoria and to a lesser extent New South Wales bore the brunt of lockdown, Melbourne and Sydney, having been denied their engine of growth for two years, which is overseas migration, and losing people to internal migration, which is a function of lockdown, uh, they have come out of they have come out of this economic shock uh, with really big debts. So Victoria is obviously now per capita the largest debt in the country, but New South Wales' debt is pretty big too. When I roll back to what happened during the GFC, the Commonwealth bore all that on its budget and the states were in surplus all the way through the you know, 2010, 2011, 2013 period. This time around, the st- two, at least two of the states and South Australia, but certainly Victoria and New South Wales are coming out of COVID um, with recession-style debts. And the Commonwealth's obviously got its own problem, but this is partly because the way COVID shook out... Um, the two most viable states before COVID, which are the ones running the, uh, riding the immigration wave, skilled migration wave, um, they're the ones who had the hardest landings. Now, back to your question, uh, is it a time to spend or is it time to tighten belt? It is absolutely a time to spend because now that the door's reopened, uh, we haven't been able to use the previous two years to do all that infrastructure mm. catch-up. We know that we haven't in this state. So... It looks like we're going to have to do another dash for growth. It was sort of a, a dash to catch up with um, service delivery. And again, we we're talking earlier about the west and the and the north. Um, if you think about, if you think about, uh, I always think about Melbourne in terms of that western suburbs, which was the fastest growing region in Australia between two thousand and nine and two thousand and nineteen. Uh, And Melbourne, as we know, we've discussed this before, it added a million people between 2009 and 2019. And the fastest growing, a quarter of that million was in the western suburbs. You get housing estates, and you see it if you you head out there. You get housing estate after housing estate after housing estate. Um, One road in and one road out. And this is what the Gold Coast used to look like in the 90s. And people said you would never let that happen again. But it's happened in Mm. Melbourne. Uh, They don't just need schools and hospitals, you know, they need police stations and courts and they need childcare centres and they need public swimming pools and they need footy grounds and they need skate park rinks. They need all, yeah, all that stuff sort, that all the sort of work. things that, that makes community work and keeps the people living in that community working in their area, mm. not having to commute 20, 30, 40 k's, up to 60 k's a day in and out um, in the in that sort of, you know, sort of transient economy, that gig economy, no wonder they were grumpy at this election. Well, you know, I mean, another thing that we did hear a bit about uh, different times in in the election campaign was around the transition of the economy and and in this uh, um, response to to climate challenges, uh, the, the build of the energy infrastructure. And I was saying earlier in the show, uh, George, that... uh, in the acceptance speech uh, of Dan Andrews, people started to chant SEC, SEC, and people of a certain age will remember the State Electricity Commission, and it hasn't been. I mean, it's kind, of, it's you know, it's been, it's there, but it's not there, there, um, and it's been kind of sold off. The the, the gas and fuels not there. You know, it's a past era, and it is coming back. 
What was driving the chant, do so you think, that, in the and, room? That yeah. we're, we're chanting for a, a government-owned monopoly. Um, <laughs> well, not quite entry a monopoly, to yeah. the electricity markets. What was that about, do so, you think? Is it about the transition from coal to renewables? Or? I, now, I have to admit I haven't seen the clip. I heard the, the, through the headphones I heard the chanting when I was yeah. the ABC radio broadcast on the Saturday night and I did hear SEC. But the people SEC. that had never heard of the SEC didn't know what people were chanting, but those of us that... Well, we probably did know what they were talking about, <laughs> but did. the people doing the chanting were probably too young to remember, so that's your point, right? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Where the hell did that come from? The that's only... exciting. There'd be engineers out there going, wow, they're chanting our workplace. Once we start chanting for all Vic Rail or something like that. <laughs> It doesn't really get the juices so, flowing, does it? I don't want to belittle it, though. There's something no, in there, 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 isn't there. there, isn't there? There is something there. So I wondered, I wondered um, whether whether that was a that was a policy risk that they took, and they were a bit wobbly about whether that thing was going to work. And I think then they look at the board. There's going to be a five in front of their um, total seat hall. It could be 52. It could be 53. It could be 54. It may even be 55 or six. And they're thinking. Phew, that SEC thing didn't cost us the election, <laughs> whatever that was. And I think that's Let's get probably, around it. <laughs> I think that's probably why. But do you know what? I mean, there's very little, very little uh, flesh on the bone on that particular policy. And you mm. can tell by them, you know, 20-odd million dollars or something was attached to it, which is obviously not what you're doing. But it's not a bad policy experiment for Victoria to have. And, in fact, I think New South Wales would probably start, be starting to think about something not dissimilar. Um, They've got a conservative government, but they've got a conservative government with a very policy-active, progressive mindset, and that's partly why they've, um, they, up until this point, have been able to defy the, some of these trends, in, especially in and around Sydney. We need these policy experiments in the next 10 years because we took 10 years off, obviously, on climate change. Um, and we took 10 years off for no other reason that Labor was spooked and that the coalition thought, isn't this easy? We just go to work every day and, and stress them out. And we don't have to worry about this stuff. Mm. And we're talking before about echo chamber. Um, one of the things I've been sort of turning around in my head is, um, you know, the chicken and egg in this climate change debate. I was sort of there at the Australian at the time, and I know that we didn't lead it. I know what happened at the time was the coalition split on it, and whoever decides to then back in the the you know knockoff Rudd or knockoff Gillard or whatever are not really deciding to back it in out of a out of a moral conviction that the globe isn't co- isn't warming or heating. Um, they're they're doing what a lot of political journos do, trying to pick a winner. Yeah, and they think if the coalition they're going to win on this thing, we better be on the right side of that so we can get our invites to um, to Kirribilli or the lodge or whatever you know when they're in government again. Now, no, again. Trust me, this is no disrespect to any individual. This is just how the system works, right? So I don't think I don't think the media, whatever bubble we're now talking about, created this sort of climate madness on the coalition side. I think it's something that they led. And when I look to the UK and the U- and the US, here's how I, here's how I frame it in terms of role of media. Uh, in the UK, uh, the Murdoch press haven't been trying to run the climate argument because the Conservatives. Going back to Thatcher, believe this is a live mm. issue. So their thing was Brexit. In the US, the US is interesting because the US is really where you can where you can prove this point. In the US, uh, do you think the people at Fox News wanted to be pro-Putin before Trump decided to be pro-Putin? No way. No way. What they ended up doing was adjusting 
and we can talk about them because they are off the charts in terms of you know wanting to be players yeah. and not letting evidence get in the way of a good shout. They um, they have now sort of because the Republican Party was captured by this idea of that sort of America first and you know let's hang out with the good dictators as opposed to the bad Democrats. Fox adjusted. That yeah. wasn't a values-based decision. So that was a, a power-based decision. Element of kicking with the wind to, yeah. to the, yeah, the yeah, way they yeah. adjust. So that's – so long story short, we've wasted 10 years on climate change, but we are now back on the horse and I don't see any political incentive now for either side of politics, for Labor to be hesitant or for the coalition to try and wedge again. I don't see that anymore. Mm. And maybe it was just sort of the rolling knocks of the – Black summer fires and then the flood after flood after flood. Uh, I think that those things have probably settled that debate in Australia, and it's a good thing too because. And then the discussion now is. I've got to say, God, it was frustrating. But it's also flipping to the cost now of of recovery and adaptation and all these things are enormous. I mean, the price tag on that, and it's the idea that we're going to allow that bill to run up and not mitigate risk is is. I think people are, are quite alive to those yeah. connections When now. it's in front of everyone as well with, with floods and, and bushfires, you know, um, frequently, all the more frequent at the moment. I suppose we know what Labor went to the election with what their policy platform was. And we've talked about the SEC as maybe a bit of a gamble, something that, that you know, they're really pushing. Um, offshore wind is another sort of big investment in the energy space. We know about infrastructure, the big build and Dan Andrews enduring um, kind of uh, removing level crossing commitment as well. But is there anything else that you think might come, potentially anything unexpected, given this will likely be his last hurrah, whether he does serve the full term or not. Um, I mean, criminal justice reform has been um, pointed out as one area that's sort of been neglected for too long. What do you think about that, whether there's anything to come that we haven't sort of properly thought about yet? I think there's probably a temptation on the Labor side now to start pulling things out from the truck drawer that were on the, you know, much more progressive side of, um, of the, their wish list. Mm. But I think, I think the practicality of doing the service catch-up is, is going to overwhelm this government and also managing the budget. I think those two things are going to, uh, are going to pull rank on any of the other ideas. Now, I think that he's a very confident man and can be a very stubborn man, but in his quiet moments of reflection, he would probably acknowledge now that the health system in Victoria uh, failed during COVID. The people didn't fail because once he put us into lockdown, we did the thing that no one in the democratic world managed to achieve. We eliminated the virus in a major city. Uh, I mean, it was going to come back, you know, some removal. Turns out. Mm. It was going to keep coming back and the Chinese are are going through this now. They're trying to figure out how to, three years into a pandemic, how to... um, how to uh, manage a reopening or a soft landing, whatever it is you call it. So I think I think health is going to continue to nag him and the government and all ministers around him. And the coalition, you know, they're going to be pretty despondent for a little while, but the coalition at some point are going to be able to come back to work with something to talk about and it will be health. And because they made a big play on health, even though they weren't able to flesh out what it is they were trying to do, um, they may they may force Labor to continue to consider it on their terms, which is unusual unusual coming out of a landslide. Mm. But I think that that's where the, I think that's where the tension will be in the in the um, in the uh, sort of weighing of 
ambition versus the practicality, the day-to-day practicality of trying to make the state work. George Mekler-Jens is with us and we're going to have to finish up shortly, George, but I, what about uh, – I actually thought ABC journalist Ben Knight was asking some important questions on election night of of some of the outgoing Labor, um, uh, Molino, for instance, about checks on Labor's power with such a, a thumping victory. Um, what about that? What, what are your thoughts around these kinds of checks when we have – we don't know the full parliament yet. We don't know yep. what it's going to look like. Okay, so we're, we're speculating on, on one level. Like, and it looks like the upper house may well be a very progressive upper house. Mm. Potentially. So that could be By the way, which a may check. be driving them yeah. down further down the, you know, ambitious um, progressive agenda. Yeah. Mm. So they may have permission to do much more. Now, the check – now, the – Check wouldn't necessarily be because they won't pay any attention to polls for the next two or three years. A check on them will be if they lost a seat in a by-election. That'll be a check. That'll be a real reality check. And there are enough people in the Labor Party old enough to remember what happened to Kennett uh, when he lost uh, the Mitchum by-election in 1997. A couple of years out from from the um, it wasn't a Brax slide. He sort of snuck in. It was a Brax sneak as opposed to a Brax slide. Um, so if this government at some point, if the, if the public have thought, well, we've, we've given you another go but we're sick of the other side because we were sick, we're not ready for the other side, remember governments do tend to win an extra election than they, mm. than they deserve. And what was 2019 about the federal government? A bit like 93 for Labor, the sweetest victory of all for Paul Keating. It's what you do. It's really in the end it's what you do with these four years. And in a sense... The check on them will be if they can convince themselves that they're going to lose the next election anyway and they want to go out swinging. They want to go out having left the state in a position to hand over to the other side on their terms. So that's that would be a check. Triple R on FM, digital, online, on demand, podcasts and via the app. White Magic is a new research project as part of State Library Victoria's 2023 Fellows and Kayleen Tan has been named one of those fellows, a creative fellow for 2023 and she writes, directs um, uh, and directs for theatre and film and audio and works between Melbourne and Singapore and she's going to use her time as a creative fellow to work with the library's conjuring collection to question Western magician visions of the mystic East and we're so taken with this idea, Kayleen, it's great to have you on Triple Uh, Good morning. Good morning. And uh, we've also got with us the new CEO of State Library Victoria, Paul Paul Duldig, and he's been in the role since August. And, yeah, welcome both. Hello. Thank you so much. No worries. And, um, Kayleen, please tell us um, more about your idea, um, your creative fellow um, project that you're about to to kick off. Okay. So um, I was initially uh, looking for some materials on um, Asian performing arts during the early 20th century uh, because, as you know, that was, um, that was a time when Australia was under, uh, was under the white Australia policy. So that meant a lot of restrictions were put on Asian um, immigration. So I was interested in who were, who were the Asians practicing? Were there artists? Were there uh, painters? Were there directors, writers? Um, so I couldn't find anything that was of interest to me. And so what I found instead were these, uh, white magicians putting on these oriental extravaganzas. And I thought, okay, that's interesting. <laughs> uh, and I thought I'd dig a little bit deeper and I found the conjuring collection at the, at the state library. And I thought, wow, a whole collection on magic. 
um, and magic files um, and artifacts. I was, it got me very excited. Wow. And so, so give us a sense of what it was like when you first dove in to, to that continent. What did you start to pull out from the W.G. Elmer Conjuring Collection? I guess, you know, um, in present day, um, you know, uh, if, if the, the, the concept of yellow face is quite, uh, you know, off-putting, but uh, I thought it might be interesting uh, to sort of sit with that discomfort for a bit and sort of dig a little bit deeper and find out what else was happening um, in Australia and globally during that time. Why were these white um, entertainers putting on these Asian acts and Asian personas? Yeah. And what's held, uh, the, the collection I understand is called the W.G. Ulmer Conjuring Collection. What's in it, do you know? Have you had a good look at it yet? Yeah, I've had I've had a little poke around. Um, so I've dug up some magic files. And these are really interesting because they are files with uh, lots of information about magicians. Um, and there are photographs, there are reviews, there is even um, personal correspondence. So you get to see the handwriting. Um, so it's, it's just really interesting. And programs as well, lots of theatre programs in there. And was it really common for magicians around that time at the turn of the 20th century to kind of invoke the, the mystic east in inverted commas or project some kind of imaginary about you know other countries and other cultures uh yes i think i think that was quite common i think um i mean there were particular magicians who were very focused on creating something very asian uh, but i think the oriental aspect the kind of exotica was um, definitely entertainment entertainment for people I'd love to hear more about some of the, the past projects you've worked on, um, but what is a performance lecture? What is this idea that you've got that you're going to work towards? Well, okay, so a performance lecture is a, a lecture with a bit of performance in it. <laughs> Very so, good answer. <laughs> so it, it, it might start off as, as a lecture, you know, something quite, you know, I might address the audience and tell them about my journey as the creative fellow. Um, but at the same time, it might, you know, it, it might become a bit more theatrical. Uh-huh. Yeah, so I might do some magic, maybe. <laughs> well, I was looking at some of your work online and the, I think you, um, I don't know if it's your most recent piece, Devil's Cherry, which is part of the Singapore International Festival of the Arts from earlier this year. And it is, it looked quite extraordinary. I don't know, will we see something like that with sort of dance and performance and or what? Maybe not at this early stage. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, if, if I were to develop the project further, it could be interesting mm. to make something much larger. Yeah. Yeah. And you work between Melbourne and, and Singapore. Is this the kind of project that you could imagine at some point developing for a performance in, in Singapore? Yeah, possibly. Definitely. Yeah. Great. Yeah, yeah they're fantastic. And Paul, we should speak with you as well. This is, I mean, these kinds of collections, oh, yeah. uh, I mean, the library's full of it, I'm sure. It's but amazing. Yeah. 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 I mean, congrats on the new job. Thank you. And uh, you've been there three months. How's it going? Yeah. So it's the three month, uh, I've made it three months. So that's good. <laughs> no, look, it's just uh, an extraordinary um, opportunity really for me. And also the collection is so diverse and so vast. It's five and a half million items. I mean, the WG Alma collection you just asked about is uh, about 2,000 books, um, 60 magazine titles, 1,500 photographs and so on from Houdini right the way through to Penn & Teller. In fact, we had Teller out a couple of months ago. Um, it's a well-known well known and uh, world-renowned collection. So Teller, the other, I think he's the 
shorter one of the pen and teller who doesn't speak is that he doesn't the, speak yeah. but he uh he was allowed into the conjuring collection and you know chopped his finger off and all those sorts of things goodness me gave the uh gave the librarian a little bit of a shock when he grabbed some of the <laughs> some of the things and but he knew what to do with them which is amazing but it's it's such a well-known collection but what i love about kayleen's um project is that she's she's not sort of looking at it from the magic point of view. So it, these collections can be looked at from so many different perspectives and, and sort of reinterpreted through, um, through gender eyes, through, 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 uh, through, through race eyes, you know, you, you name it. So I think that's the really interesting thing about And particularly the fellowships, we encourage that. And, you know, looking at where Kayleen starts her um, project and where it finishes up is going to be interesting as well because a lot of people change as they go through and find more and more in the collection that they can explore is it a year long is that what you've yeah 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 Yeah. how exciting and and i mean kayleen is one of the recipients of these creative fellowships tell us about the fellowships more broadly what criteria is there and what kinds of categories do you have yeah so there's uh, we're giving out 13 fellowships uh last week uh for 2023 and um they they range well anything really that involves looking at the collection and exploring the collection creatively. So anything from artists right the way through to more sort of scientific sort of perspective or literary perspective. And the idea is that as you go through that journey, you explore the correct collection, you discover more about your own practice, and you deliver something at the end. And in Kayleen's case, it's a performance lecture, which we'll find out what that means in a year's time. Um, some are doing um, artist books, some are doing artworks, um, some are doing, um, you know, photographic um, series. Some are doing print printmaking, and we have partners um, also. Uh, the Balderson uh, Press out at uh, St Andrews is an example, and uh, a range of different um, art forms and and creative pursuits. So it's it's an incredible program. It's been going for 21 years, and over that time, we've given out 2.8 million dollars. So, yeah, and I think yeah. we've spoken to some of the creative fellows before on on, on this show. And I, I, from memory, you know, some of the projects are about bringing people into the library, bringing you know different mm. groups of people into the library. And of course, the last couple of years has been, you know, different. Yeah. Um, let's put it that way. But uh, has it has it snapped back? The library oh, yeah. are people starting to come back and use it to its full extent again. Look, it, absolutely. It was one of the first things to actually come back post lockdown. So um, we've had over one point one a quarter million, I think, so far people through the doors since lockdown, um, and we're back to the same weekly attendance that we had before. So in a you know CBD that's probably struggling a little bit. I mean, it is from the point of view of office space. I think the last I saw was yeah. sort of sixty percent back. Or yeah, something then, like then that's yeah. generous. I think so. Mm-hmm. We're, we're absolutely back. And I think, you know, the, the really nice thing about the library is it's it's in this um, sweet spot of what people want to do post-lockdown. They want to be amongst other people safely. They want to be, um, you know, doing doing their thing without necessarily being in the office as well. So we've got uh, people that are coming in just for, for video conferences, to be honest, as well as people using the collection using librarian services. So it's it's really, yeah, no, we're back. It's yeah. no question, yeah. And Kayleen, is, is the State Library a place that you've spent much time in? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I love to just go there and read. It's great. Yeah, brilliant. And, I mean, you've worked quite a lot with audio in, in your past projects. Mm-hmm. Do you have an idea of how that might sort of feature in the performance lecture you're putting together? Not at the moment, but, <laughs> um, um, you know, sound, sound will be uh, an 
an aspect that I'll be working with, maybe with sound design. I'm not sure yet. Yeah, great. Yeah. And so when is sort of a rough time frame of, of, of when the public might be able to, to see it? I think at the end of next year. Great. Yeah. yeah. Okay, we'll make a note. Absolutely. <laughs> Let people get you know. back on to promote it. Just yeah, ahead of it. yeah, that would be fantastic. And and I mean, Paul, what are your plans for the State Library of Victoria? Our new CEO, you've um... yeah. Look, the the uh, the opportunities are almost boundless. I haven't found the haven't found the uh, the limits yet. So look, we we uh, at the library are just so excited about what we can do for Victoria. Um, we have, you know, as we've just been talking about, an absolutely beautiful building. The whole precinct is is um, is incredible, and so having as many people be able to enjoy that as possible from all over Victoria, from all over the world, uh, we've got um, two new, uh, really stunning exhibition spaces that are um, currently have really amazing exhibitions in them, as well as a whole range of programs um, and the collection itself and the librarian services. So it's you know it's a it's a really interesting place. We've got uh, maker space. We've got recording studios. You can record your own podcast. Um, I've um, lent my um, lent my piano. So uh, in one of the studios, you can play the piano if you want. Um, you know, why you did know. you have to lend your piano? Well, it came up in a staff, in a staff <laughs> meeting. Someone said, "We need a piano," and I said, "Well, I've I've kind of got one in the shed. It's a, a stage piano." So oh, yeah. Um, yeah, so. Um, yeah, why not? They're, they're why pretty not? big pieces of furniture, and I discovered when I moved yeah. house recently that they can be kind of hard to offload. So I could have given you my piano yeah, if you wanted a few months you know, back. Any, anything, we'll, we'll take it. Makes <laughs> sense. Right. That yeah. I suppose the CEO of a state library, of Victoria, lending something. I mean, yeah, it yeah, makes yeah. Sense. yeah. I'm, I'm trying to, you know, prove, prove that we actually need to buy one. Yeah. <laughs> well, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm so, interested, Kayleen. I mean, you've, have you met some of the other creative fellows? I don't know what happens with regards to to others. Whether you hang out or something with them? Uh, well, we we. We met up uh, at an event when when the fellowships were announced last week. So yeah, I've met them, and it's it's really interesting because all the projects are so different. Um, and yeah, it's just it'll be great when we have our own spaces. Is as part of the fellowship, we are given a space to work in the library. So it'll be nice to get to know them more and to see if you know the projects can cross pollinate. I'd collaborations. Love, I'd love to see too if you do manage to weave <laughs> magic into the performance itself. Have you have you done that before? How might you try to kind of um, get a handle on how to perform magic? I will learn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's extraordinary. I've seen musician uh, musicians magicians talk about their art, and a lot of it's just distraction. Yeah, yeah, you and know, sleight of hand. Yeah, yeah. Mm. it's extraordinary, extraordinary, mm. and uh, and. I must ask then, for the summer, are there special things on that people should know about, Paul, well, for the summer? Absolutely. There's two two shows that you really should see. One is the Fringe Retrospective and, and Prospective. So it's uh, it's called uh, the Fringe 20, uh, ni- 1982 to 2062. I think I've got my years right. So 40 years back and 40 years forward. So that's in the... Um, in the library, but also Handmade Universe is really worth a look at if you're interested in uh, anything to do with craft, making, coding, uh, particularly uh, women's art and craft and the boundaries between craft and science. Really interesting. Um, the world of the book is well, look- well worth looking at. That's being refreshed early next year, but that's the hist- that's the really the treasures. So you know the two thousand year old um, cuneiform and 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 so on. But but also a range of programming for for summer, particularly um, for kids, but also for for grown ups as well. So you know, look online. There's a there's a whole summer program. Fantastic. 
Great. Well, thank you both for coming in. And um, yeah, we'll, we'll look forward to an update, Kayleen, about how you're going with, um, with your project. Um, Kayleen Tan uh, has just been named a Creative Fellow for 2023 at the State Library of Victoria and will be using the WG Elmer Conjuring Collection for her project. And uh, we look forward to the performance lecture later in 2023 and uh, and. Paul Dougley. Dougley, um, thanks for coming in. Uh, new CEO of State Library Victoria just started in that role back in August. And uh, yeah, it sounds like there's lots at the State Library to do and see uh, right now. So um, you don't have to wait for Kayleen's show later in the year. It's open for business. Thanks so much. Thanks. Triple R on FM, digital, online, on demand, podcasts and via the app. It's been a treat this year to have Petra Stock part of the grapevine. She's maintained a freedom of information pastime for the past Last decade or so and has been sharing stories of her FOI requests that have revealed new and important information as well as requests that have pretty much gone nowhere, such as the process of seeking information from government that they may or may not hold. Uh, this morning, Petra, uh, we're speaking with you about your FOI funny files, uh, or at least your quirky requests. Have FOI and funny files ever been said in the same sentence? I don't know. <laughs> they have. <laughs> it's a time for first. Yes, they have. The, the FOIFF. <laughs> um, um, tell us what you sought from the Bureau of Meteorology, or should we call it the Bureau? Well, it is a silly season, so that's my excuse for this one, although I didn't put the request in in December. Um, but, okay, so I need to give a bit of context for this, otherwise it really is going to sound like I'm a bit of a lunatic. <laughs> um, so lockdown 2020, right? We're all stuck in our home. Everyone sort of develops certain fixations during that time in that sort of very narrow kind of world that you live inside your house and then your one hour of exercise. Some people fixated on the numbers of the day, other people the daily Dan. Um, for me, um, I really loved that one hour of exercise, but I started noticing a pattern um, where... You'd look at the forecast for the day, it looked absolutely terrible, cold, windy, rainy, and then you'd go out for your hour of exercise and the weather was glorious. Mm. Um, and particularly on weekends, this was a thing. So a sort of conspiracy <laughs> developed in my brain. It was a good time for conspiracies, you know? <laughs> yeah. This is, I, I think, a fairly harmless conspiracy, well, I hope so, um, where I was wondering, is the Bureau trying to put these poor forecasts out so people don't make plans to meet up on the weekend? Um, and then in 2021... When we were back in lockdown and I noticed the pattern happening again, I was like, okay, time to try an FOI. <laughs> so I concocted this um, sort of uh, FOI that was like uh, emails, briefings um, about Melbourne forecast and including words like COVID-19, stage three restrictions. So this is the nuts and bolts of how you actually put in an FOI request. You look for, you ask for sort of keywords in certain communications. That's your starting point. Yeah. Well, I guess I was trying to think, how would I actually get to the bottom of this? Mm. And that's sort of how I went about it. 
um, bomb or the bureau, to their credit, um, actually like process the request completely seriously. They um, they even got back to me and helped me sort of rescope the request. They said. <laughs> Um, actually, it's our Hazard Preparedness and Response South team, which mainly does the Melbourne forecasts, and they also had something called the COVID Incident Management team and a central COVID-19 inbox. Um, so they helped me kind of tweak the request. Um, I have no idea what they thought of it. <laughs> um, anyway... Sad to say, when I finally got the response back, no documents existed. So there was no directive at all to make the weather look terrible so people didn't plan to spend more than an hour outside? No. <laughs> okay, well, that's I good to know. I mean, that's, uh, yeah, it's good to know it's functioning <laughs> properly. So <laughs> The forecasts are just wrong. Did the pattern, once you got that answer, did the pattern seem to go away uh, or did the pattern still remain for you, Petra? Well, I mean, it's it's entirely possible that maybe the forecasts just are not entirely accurate every day. Or potentially the hour that you wanted to go for a walk happened to be the one glorious hour and Melbourne's just like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I did notice today the weather on the um, the bomb app looked pretty cloudy, but it's actually beautiful outside. Yeah, there's some so. sun streaming in, the windows in the courtyard. What's going mm-hmm. on there? Well, I, I suppose we've got time over the summer, Dylan. We can go and check we what can. happened. Yep. What happened to the clouds on the 28th of November 2022? Um, that's hysterical, Petra. But I, I, I sort of like to think, I mean... I guess on the one hand, something like that, maybe I'm wasting their time. But on the other hand, I'm thinking all these officers, especially now post the Victorian election, all those poor FOI officers are having to process all those requests they deferred till after the election. Um, and I like to think that, you know, maybe there'll be one or two in there that will give them something to Keep smile them going. about. That's right. Was there anything at all that you learned from that experience, like, was there anything interesting in some of the communications that you accessed that provided an insight into the way that BOM operates or anything? Well, I guess I did learn that, you know, they did have, they do have this special team that does the Victorian forecast and they did have this sort of COVID response um, team. I'm not sure what they would have been doing, maybe making sure they can still send people out to their weather stations. I don't know. Mm. Um, it is always kind of interesting. You do learn a little bit about the kind of internal workings of of agencies and authorities when you do these things. And also that they took it seriously, as you say. I mean, is there potential that agencies could reject requests that are, you know, cheeky? I, d- I don't think that's a valid reason uh-huh. for a rejection. So, you know, everyone out there. Think of your silly requests. Go nuts. (laughs) Well, someone had a look at the Women's Network rebranding and I'd love for you to tell that story, but first remind people that might not have seen that happen what the Women's Network rebranding was. Well, this was a a big story back in, um, I think it was March this year, um, where uh, this thing called the Women's Network... um, had a new logo and this was sort of um, ridiculed on the social media because essentially the logo that was released was sort of this big, long, kind of phallic 
purple symbol with a sort of curly W. It all looked, um, yeah. It wasn't even part of the lettering or anything, was it? It was just there. <laughs> it was just this, <laughs> this um, elongated kind yeah. of <laughs> object. Anyway, it was rightly ridiculed on um, on social media and, and um Shortly, you know, sort of various apologies and so on were made. But, you know, some of my favourite news stories are these kind of FOI requests where some journalist is just kind of quick and smart enough to think, oh, there's this sort of weird thing. I'll stick in an FOI request and see what I get back. So Tori Shepherd from The Guardian did that um, and she wrote up a a great story about her, what she got back through those documents. And it was funny because um, the rebranding was questioned by um, the women's champion within government, but not for its design. Um, the person um, who was the champion, which is basically a public servant whose role it is to kind of champion women within the public service basically wanted to know whose idea it was to actually go about rebranding. So, I mean, you know, it's a nice story. <laughs> yeah, and you can learn a lot from some of the, the processes involved in these government-run sort of advertising campaigns or rebranding as well. I just, as you were speaking, thinking of that milkshake video that was all about teaching teens kind of, you know, That's proper right. consent and it was yeah. just this bizarre video that kind of flipped the male and female roles in a strange, confusing way and they were making analogies to things that just all meaning was gone. <laughs> and, of course, like, back to the Bureau example, I could have been FOIing the the bomb about something entirely different, which became a story this year. Yeah, unbranding. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. So what laugh. else? Are, what else have you got in the funny files? Um, there was a nice um, a journalist called Gary Nunn who um, wrote a book called The Psychic Tests. Um, apparently used FOI as part of the research for this book. So this book is all about the world of astrology, tarot, and so on. And um, I actually, I haven't read the book, but a, a write-up of it in the Canberra Times talked about how his um, expeditions in FOI as part of this book. And he actually learned that, so New South Wales police between um, 2003 and 2019 used psychics 19 times in to help them sort of presumably solve cases mm. um which is quite bizarre and sometimes paid for it like um see that one if i put that in i'd think oh, i'm just being totally crazy here but turns out so that was done through official channels it wasn't police officers kind of acting going rogue and doing their own little thing on the side it was done through the police force no, so, you would, yeah, yeah. To, to get that through foi yeah. <laughs> do we know if other police forces have done that I wonder if they, well, no, that's it's been probably... checked. I wonder if Victoria Police has done that ripe fodder for someone mm. to pop some in. Maybe <laughs> I'll do that later today. <laughs> I can imagine, I mean, I don't know why people want to use a psychic, psychic for cases, but I guess perhaps some of these are so desperate to solve them that you try anything. Yeah, and um, he was saying especially um, in kind of murder cases where they're sort of run out of, um, you know, run out of potential 
um, leads, I guess, you know. And, and, yeah. I have to ask, was there any sense that it helped at all? I don't know, but I really want to read the book and find out. Yeah. 19 yeah. times, huh? Um, Petra Stocky's with us. We're talking freedom of information and uh, she's been coming in. This is, I think, your fifth time, Petra, bringing in different FOI examples and I suppose a little bit of instruction there around how to shape an FOI request and we are all eligible to make these to government agencies or government departments and, and seek information. Uh, there's, I'm sure there's others like you out there that do this for... Um, you know, to meet your own curiosity um, for stories as well. Uh, but I suppose the question is, are you a transparency Jedi on <laughs> <laughs> Rex Patrick's measure of such things? And I guess, you know, I know a little bit about this, but perhaps um, explain uh, Rich, uh, former Senator Rex Patrick's uh, transparency Jedi criteria <laughs> well, to us. Rex Patrick was a senator in the Australian Parliament and I think more recently has been running for Lord Mayor of Adelaide, but at some point in time obviously got the FOI bug <laughs> um, and it has actually been very successful at it. You know, I've seen stories um, that have been written up where he used FOI, for example, to look at where those nuclear subs might um might land when they come to Australia. So he's been very um, successful and has set up this little thing um, called Transparency Jedis, um, which I saw him sharing on social media. Um, I thought it was very cute. I mean, it's sort of very nerdy fun here. Um, But his system... He says to be a transparency Jedi, you need 25 points. So you get two points if you're successful in having an internal review. So that's where you submit an FOI request and it maybe gets rejected or knocked back and you ask for an internal review. So you ask the department to look at your request again. And, and You've done that? I've tried that uh-huh. um, with the Civil Aviation right, two Safety Authority. Do you get points yeah. just for asking or does there have to be an internal yeah. review to get the points? You have to be successful. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Carly's setting up my points. <laughs> two plus. Um, you get five points if you um, take uh, your FOI to the Information Commissioner. So in Victoria we've got the Victorian Information Commissioner Um, And if you're successful, if they come back and say, no, we disagree with the department's decision on this, um, and then you go through this lengthy process where you get to wait 60 days before the department actually um, provides... Sounds like you deserve yeah. more than five points for that. Have you have you earned those ones yet? Um, so I've been successful two times <gasps> okay. as Information Commissioner. Good. Do you add it twice then? I think you do. Yeah, so yeah. maybe, I don't know. Yeah. Is it five points? Well, now she's on 12. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're working this out as a as adjudicators apparently. Um, and you get 10 points if you take your uh, FOI rejection or, or um, you know, response to the tribunal. So he's got the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, which is the federal one, but, of course, in Victoria we have VCAT, Um, Most states have something like this. And in that case, you get 10 points. So to be a Jedi, 
you have to be you have to have 25 points which is pretty hard i reckon i mean mate the force be with you you're almost there Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.